Luke chapter 4 is once again where we're going to be, and we're going to start reading in uh, uh, verses 14. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack as we go, so I'm not going to read it all in one clump. I'm going to unpack it as we go. So we'll be turning back to uh, Luke chapter 14 together, or Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and so on uh, together. So look at uh, verse uh, 14 and 15, and let's read those two verses together. So remember, this is coming right off of the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He, he's, he's now out of the wilderness. He's, he's done with that. He's, he's eaten. He's gotten some food in his belly, and he's, his ministry has now begun. So let's look at verse 14 together. And it says this, it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So, so looking at this, this passage, or these two verses, we can set up for us the context uh, in, in which we, we see Jesus' ministry beginning, Right? So, so Jesus, immediately as he is uh, done being baptized, he begins his ministry by going back to Galilee, once again, led by the Holy Spirit of, of God, right? He's led by the Spirit. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to go back into Galilee and to preach and proclaim uh, the gospel. And, and so what we see, though, what's happening in these verses, and it's to set us up for, the next, for these next sections, is that Jesus kind of becomes this local celebrity and hero, doesn't he? I mean, look, look, where the, look where the way that it, it, it speaks about Jesus. The, the report of him goes throughout all the surrounding country. All the surrounding regions begin to hear about this guy, Jesus, who is speaking and teaching and preaching and reading God's Word and praying God's Word in ways that that we have never seen. So Jesus becomes this celebrity. Now, we have celebrities, right? And most of them are not, you know, in a Jesus kind of way. But for the Jews, that Jesus was a celebrity. A teacher, a good, a good rabbi is their celebrity, is the people that they wanted to follow, they wanted to hear. And so, and we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. Wherever he went, crowds just, just thronged to him, didn't they? They just, they just went after him. So here's Jesus speaking, and, and, and he becomes, he's becoming this, this celebrity, this powerful teacher and, and, and preacher, and, and this is what Jesus does. He's learning, but as he's learning, he's preaching, and he's, a, he's, 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 um, he's impressing so many. In fact, his popularity becomes as such, what does it say there in verse 15, that as he taught in the synagogues, he was being glorified by all. I mean, he was being praised. He was being exalted um, in, in those places. And so that sets us up for the mentality or the idea of where we're going to go in this next passage, at least contextually. So, so looking now at, verses, at verse 16, Jesus, right, he's in the region of Galilee, and in Galilee there's a little town, the town that he's from, Nazareth. Right? And so Jesus, look at verse 16, says, And he came to Nazareth, right? So this is his, this is his hometown. This is, where, this is where he is from, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood to read. So this is Jesus' hometown. And as he gets there, of course, when Jesus goes there, 
the hometown is going to want Jesus to preach, right? I mean, don't, don't you remember there's nothing that good comes out of Nazareth? They can kind of look and say, see, Jesus, something can good come out of Nazareth. Look at him. So, of course, Jesus is going to have the, the honor and the privilege on that particular Sabbath to, to speak and to read uh, from the Word of God. Jesus is this celebrity. Of course, we want him to, to read. And so you can imagine that as they gathered that day in the synagogue, how it was probably packed with people waiting to hear of this, this Jesus who i known when he was a little boy, now grown up, 30 years old, and he wants to speak. He's popular. He's a celebrity. We want to hear this, this, this teacher speak to us now. Right? It's Jesus. The boy we grew up with. The, guy that we, the boy that we saw playing on the streets. Or maybe it was the young man that was, we babysitted when Mary and Joseph went on a date. So in this small town, everybody knew him. They, they, knew, they, they knew about him. They knew who this guy was. He was not uh, something that he hadn't heard of. So you guys know. Like, you, you know pretty much everybody. I don't. I'm, gonna, I'm not clued into that. But you guys, like, you can mention names and talk about things and stuff like that that I am like, what? Who are you talking about? Right, this is the same idea. They know Jesus. They know who he is. And they knew him even before he was popular. They knew he was different. They knew he was without sin. He, was, he did everything right. You know, maybe he was, he was known as the goody two-shoes or Mr. Perfect. But they knew Jesus. And so here's Jesus preparing to speak and, and preach the, the, the text and speak this text in, in a way. And so they're anticipating, waiting for Jesus to stand up. What, what would he read? What would he pick from? And, and what he picks from is from Isaiah 61. Let's look at verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, right? So he picked Isaiah, and he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. Look at verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent to me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of, of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, there's some similarities and there's some differences to the Jewish synagogue and what we do. Now, when they read the scripture, they would always stand, right? So that's Jesus is standing up. He's reading from Isaiah and, uh, uh, and everybody else is standing. So when, when Jesus came and sat back down after he read the scripture, he was sitting down to teach them, Right? So it wasn't a, you know, drop the mic, I just got you kind of thing, right? He, he wasn't doing that. Yeah, he, this is the way they taught. They sat down and then they would, they would, they would listen to, to the teacher as the teacher taught, and so he sat down. So as he sat down, the eyes of the synagogue were, were, were fixed uh, 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 upon him. And so Jesus reads this passage, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, to them, right? A, a, a very important passage for them. 
right? In, in, in essence, as, they, 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 as he read this, this passage of Isaiah 61, the good news, as, as it says there, the Holy Spirit has anointed him to, to proclaim good news, the, the good news for the poor, for the impressed, and for the imprisoned, and for the, 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 the crippled, and for the, the blind. And Jesus is saying, this is me. I am the one. And this, this familiar passage that, that they read, so no, no wonder they're, they're so enthralled and they're wondering, what is Jesus going to say? And so Jesus says, this is me. This is me. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the Messiah. I am the, the anointed one. But Jesus is telling them that he is the Messiah, which is the Hebrew way of saying, I'm the anointed one. They knew this passage. And so in verse 22, as we read it, let's read verse 22 and just listen to their response. And all who spoke well of him marveled at, at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is, this, is not this Joseph's son? So, so right here, things are still going pretty good. Right? Jesus preached there. They're in, in, enamored. They're, they're marveling at the things that Jesus is saying, the words that Jesus, wrote, that, that Jesus read, and they're marveling the fact that now Jesus himself, this guy that they, that they grew up with, they known since he was just a child, is saying to them that I am the Messiah. Now listen, they're not angry about that, are they? This isn't, this isn't what they're upset about. In fact, even when they're saying, is this not Joseph's son, this is not a derogatory statement toward him. They're not being derogatory toward him like, oh, I doubt, I, I, I doubt that. What it, what it is, is this is shock. How can we couldn't see it? This is, this is shock. Wow, Joseph's son, we've known this guy his whole life, and now he is saying that he is the Messiah? Wow! They're in shock. They're marveling. And so we need to understand then, at this point, what is it then that they believe about the Messiah? We need to stop for a second and, and think about that. What, is, what are they thinking about the Messiah? Because if you know this passage, things are going to go bad really quickly. So what do they think? So in Genesis chapter 12, God promises to Israel, right, via Abraham, the father of Israel, that, that, that he, through him, he would be a great nation. He would be blessed, and their family would be, would be huge. Their family would be as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, as, as numerous as the, the, the sand on the seashore, and, and having children and a multitude of children was a blessing. And so this is the blessing that God is saying to, to Israel through Abraham, that they were going to be a, a big and great nation. And this family grew. This family grew into, a, into a, a nation of people. In fact, they grew into a nation of people while under the, the bondage of slavery in, in Egypt. And then God delivered them and brought them to the, to the promised land. And see, during this, this whole time, though, a part of, of this Abrahamic promise that God made to Abraham and to Israel, and is what they were to remember as a people, that as, as God set them apart, they weren't supposed to be just by themselves, 
right, and become this elitist group. But as God's chosen people, they were going to be a blessing to all nations. That through them, God would bless all the nations. So they were set apart. Yes, they were chosen, but they were to be a, 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 a signpost to the world. A, a, a blaring sign of the greatness and the glory of the one and true living God. That was, the, that was one of the great purposes of Israel. But as they, as they grew, Israel became more, um, they became more prideful, didn't they? They became more ethnocentric. We'll talk about that word in a few minutes. They became more prideful and ethnocentric that they were the chosen ones. We were the, we're the only special ones. We were the only special ones. So what ended up happening over and over in their disobedience to the Lord, they were overthrown and they were conquered a lot. And so what they began to believe was as the prophecies would come in, the Old Testament prophets would, would, would prophesy, they would, they would see this Messiah that would bring, uh, that would bring conquered victory over this, this oppression, this overthrowing, right, that they'd been experiencing for thousands of years. They were going to be, that was going to be done with, and the Messiah was going to, to rid us of those things and rid us of that oppression and make us a great nation uh, again. So this is what they were thinking when they thought about the Messiah. This is what they were, were thinking, that, 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 that the Messiah would come and he would make things right for Israel. He would restore them to the prominent position. He would give them completely back the land that God had promised them. And so when Jesus read these words from Isaiah 61, and then he said, these things are fulfilled in me, they're, they're excited because then they're in their hearts and in their minds they're, saying, they're thinking, bye-bye, Rome. Bye-bye, poverty. Bye-bye, oppression. Bye-bye, slavery. The Messiah is here. Israel is coming back. We're going to be big again. And to those who followed the Torah, the law explicitly, this is what they were celebrating in that moment. Now, this is where things go bad, right? If, you, if you're familiar with this passage, it's going to go really bad. In fact, it's probably, if you're not familiar where we're going, you're probably going to be pretty surprised where, where this goes. So everyone is excited. Jesus preached, says, I am the Messiah. I am here. But Jesus really knows what's going on. He knows their misunderstanding. He knows what, what, what they're holding to and what, who he really is and even what the prophets were, were speaking uh, about him. And so he exposes their incorrect view of him and the gospel. Right? So he gives this, um, he gives this, um, this parable, right? Look at verse 23. He gives this parable. He says, and, and he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as, as well. And so this is, this is Jesus saying in this, this little, uh, little proverb, if you're, if you're really the, do the doctor, then heal yourself. That's, that's kind of what that, that's what that proverb is. And doesn't that sound familiar? If you're truly the Savior, then get off this cross and save yourself. So Jesus is saying, doubtless or will you say this to me, because you're going to say this. Give it three years, and this is what you're going to say about me. And then Jesus mentions these works of miracles at Capernaum. 
and we're going to get to those works of uh, miracles next week and from uh, Capernaum, but what he's doing, he's also exposing some of their, their desires that as this Messiah, now they're going to want these, these miracles to take place in there, in, right there in Nazareth. But Jesus isn't playing that game, is he? And so he starts, he, he, he continues with that line that, that we're pretty familiar with, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. That's a familiar we're, we're, we're uh, familiar with. Kind of a weird statement to make to everyone, uh, uh, everyone there who is clearly they've accepted him. Not only as Jesus, the kid who grew up in this hometown or in this town, but also Jesus who's saying he's the Messiah. They're, they're accepting him. But it also makes sense when he says this as we look at these next two examples in, uh, uh, that he gives us from the Old Testament. Two great prophets of the Old Testament that were, that were rejected by their people. That were rejected by their people. So look at verse 25. Jesus says in verse 25, he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So he, he starts with this first example, right? So we're, we're somewhat familiar with, with, uh, with, with Elijah. And in this time, there was a famine in the land. God was judging his people, and there was a great famine, right? And during the famine, who does the famine hit the hardest the most? It hits widows, and it hits orphans. So, so there's widows throughout the land of Israel that are being hit hard with this famine. Now, through this famine and through this time, God not only provides for Elijah, and that's mainly the, the point of the text is God provides for Elijah, but God does something very peculiar in that story in providing for this woman, Zarephath, and her son. And so what happens is, is God tells him to go find this widow. And he does. And, he, and, and she's, she's got two jars. She's got a jar of flour and she's got a jar of oil and it's down to the bottom of the barrel. She's got enough to make one more lunch. She's got enough to make one more lunch and, and Elijah comes up to, to her and says, God says, you give me that food, you feed me right now and if you trust me, believe me, God is going to take care of you your two jars will always be filled until the famine is over. Now here's Zarephath. She even says to, to Elijah in response, she says, this is my last meal. We're going to eat and we're going to die. Elijah's her only hope. And so she cooks up the meal and she gives it to Elijah and God fulfills his promise. Now the peculiar thing, the reason why, why the, Jesus is bringing this story up the reason why Jesus is, is bringing this story up because God stepped in and provided for this widow who wasn't even an Israelite. While there were Israelite widows who were starving and dying. And he's bringing up this, this, this story to, to expose that this is not even Israelite. She is a Phoenician. So do we catch the point? Do we, do we catch the point about what he's teaching us about the, about the gospel? The second one is Elijah, verse 27. He, or, uh, Elisha, sorry, Elisha, verse 27. He says, and there were many lepers 
in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Another example, right? During this time of Israel where there was this epidemic of leprosy that were going around, and there were uh, colonies of leprosy, lepers all over Israel, and, and, and yet there is this Syrian army commander who, by the way, it says that God favored in giving victory, this Naaman, who wasn't a believer, follower of God-fear, whatever, God is favoring him. And he had leprosy. He had leprosy, and, and, and through God's providence, there was a, a little girl, a little Israelite girl, who was brought into slavery in Syria, said, hey, if you want to be healed, you need to go see this guy in Israel, named Elisha. And so he gets permission to go. He goes to Israel. Then he goes straight to the king. Of course, I mean, if a guy can heal, he's going to be, he's going to be hanging out with the king. And the king is, is, is absolutely terrified when he sees this great army commander of the, of the Syrians come up at his doorstep wanting help. He thinks that this is the Syrians come to spy on them to destroy them. So he's tearing his robes and he's, he's weeping bitterly thinking that this is the end of the world. And Elisha hears about it. Elisha sends messengers to tell this, uh, this commander. He says, go, go wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And I love the response of this guy. This, this guy comes back and says, you want me to go wash in the Jordan River? I came all the way here for you to tell me to go wash in the Jordan River. And he, and he points out, hey, where I'm from, there's two rivers that are awesome, that are clean. They're not nasty like, like this unclean people. I'm not doing that. And he, he walks away in his leprosy. And it's once his servants find out about it, they actually beg him. They say, Master, didn't we come here for this? And he changes his mind. And he goes and, back and, and washes himself in the, uh, uh, in the Jordan River, and, and God clean, uh, cleans him, renews him, re- restores him. I think even more of a pointed story that Jesus is pointing up that, that, that God is choosing to show mercy once again through Elijah, his prophet, the prophet who was rejected by the very people that he was come to say, to, to pronounce uh, or preach repentance, that God once again heals another foreigner in the midst of many Israelites who had leprosy. So right here, all these people there at once in the synagogue, they were marveling at Jesus. They were in awe of what he was speaking and what he was reading and this claim to be the Messiah. But quickly, that quickly things change and things start to dawn on them. He may be claiming to be the Messiah, but this is not the Messiah we think that he should be. And so they respond angrily. Look at verse 28. And it's actually deeper than anger. Look at verse 28. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Right? So they they just weren't offended, were they? I mean, they were were filled with wrath. Right? This is kind of like, you know, like, you don't talk about my mama kind of stuff. Deeper. This deep wrath. And look look at this. They heard it, they filled with wrath in verse 29, and they rose up and they drove him out of town. They drove Jesus out of town and they brought him to a, to a, to a hill, to a brow of a hill, which means a cliff. 
They brought him to a, to a cliff and they were ready to, what, push him off the cliff. You're no longer welcome in this town, Jesus. I don't care who your parents are. I don't care where you grew up. I don't care how good you preach or teach, but you are no longer welcome. In fact, you're no longer welcome in the sense we want you dead. How surprised are we at this response? How, how surprised are we, resp- are, we to, are we to respond in this, to the gospel here, right? Jesus preaches it and shows their misunderstandings and their misconceptions of the gospel, showing us an exact opposite of what they believe, and they flat out reject Jesus completely to the point of wanting to kill him. His buddies that he grew up with. And, and, and then verse 30, which is amazing. Look at verse 30. He says, but passing through their midst, he went away. One of the things I, I thought about it, if, if you guys remember the old cartoons? Uh, they're, they're old, older for me. They were originals for some of you all. Um, but the old cartoons of Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, right? I love those cartoons. Like, you younger kids have no clue how awesome cartoons used to be. Your cartoons are terrible. And, and I will say that to every generation because my, our cartoons are pretty awesome. And, and so there's this wily Coyote. Do I have to explain it too much? Lexi, do you need me to uh, unpack this for you? Ex, expose it. You've seen it? You've seen Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner? Right? Okay. So Wile E. Coyote is trying to eat the Roadrunner, right? And the Roadrunner, of course, meet me, is fast. And, and the wily coyote can't catch up. But, but every now and then, like, you're watching this cartoon, and, and you begin to feel sorry for the coyote, by the way. I mean, you just kind of do, because this guy takes a beating, right? He gets blown up, and yet he shows up every, you know, every Saturday morning. Um, so, so he's trying to catch, and sometimes he gets really close. In fact, it almost seems like he got the, the roadrunner in a trap, right? Like, it's about the bomb, the acne bomb is about to blow up, or, or like, it's, he, he grabbed the, the, the roadrunner, uh, like, over the cliff, like, you remember that? And then all of a sudden, the roadrunner's, he's out of there, and then he looks, he looks, like, right here, and he's, like, he's gone, and then he looks down, and then he falls. Right, you remember that? Right? That, that's kind of what I thought here. Like, like all of a sudden, they're, they're rounding Jesus up. They're angry. They want him dead. And they grab him, and they're trying to throw him off the cliff. They're throwing the strap and the acne bombs to him. And before they know it, they're like, dude, I thought you had him. I did. You had him too. I know. Amazing. Jesus just flexes a little bit, I think, of his omnipotent power there. And we see that, of course, it's not his time. His time will be on the cross when that, when that proverb will be spoken to him. So there's four things that I want us to observe about this, about this passage. Four things that we can, we can learn about the gospel. And we're going to go through these uh, fairly quickly. But I want you to understand there's four things here that we can understand about the gospel. Not just here, but it also goes forward throughout uh, the, the New Testament or throughout uh, Jesus' time on earth. Number one, and we already mentioned this just a little bit, is that the gospel is not ethnocentric, right? And, and that what that means is it's not, the gospel is not just for one people group, right? So for the Israelites, it was, it's not just for them. The Messiah, the gospel, the message of the Bible, the Old Testament is not just for the Israelites, 
So Israel, they, remembering that they were Israel, they were God's chosen people, right? They were the ones who were supposed to bring blessing and joy to all nations, but what did they bring? They brought arrogance and flat-out hatred toward everyone, didn't they? I mean, just flat-out hatred toward anyone. If you weren't a Jew, and in fact, if you weren't just a, a Jew, if you weren't a, a follower of the Torah, we hate you. We want nothing to do with you. I'm, I'm not even going to uh, uh, touch you. So, so Jesus, as he came, he's reversing this idea. So remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Remember this, this parable where there's this Samaritan who gets robbed and he gets beaten on the road? And he's left for dead. As people walk by, there's a, there's a Levite priest that walks by and he looks at this Samaritan. Yeah. And that's about what he sounded like when he saw him. Ugh. Yuck. Another, another uh, Jew came by and, and saw him and said, Ugh, Gross. Well, nothing to do with that guy. And then a, then a Samaritan came by, right? Remember the Samaritans, the ones that they walk all the way around to, we want nothing to do with these half-breeds. We want nothing to do with them. A Samaritan walks by and looks at this guy and has compassion. And he picks him up and he puts him on his, his animal and he takes him into town and he pays for him for a place to get better, to rest, and he even offers to come back and pay for any more that he might owe for this guy to get better. And, and the point of that story is to expose the ethnocentric nature of Israel. That they believe that the Messiah, the gospel, and God is just about them. They're not. They're not. You remember the parable of the tenants? Look to looked up Matthew 21. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Look at verse 33. Right here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and he went to another country. Right? Y'all catch what's going on there. And when the season for the, for the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And his tenants looked at his servants, and they beat the first. And they killed another, and they stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw his son, they said to themselves, This is, a, this is his heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? And then he answered them, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let them out of the vineyard. So other tenants, other tenants, who are those other tenants? He will give him the fruits of their seasons. I mean, we see this, and we look at verse 42. The stone that the builders rejected had become a cornerstone. The, the Lord's doing and marveled in their eyes. I therefore tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and give to a people producing its fruits. And we see the, what's happening. 
I mean, do we have to unpack that to see what, what, what Jesus is saying directly to these Israelites? You're the evil tenants. And I'm going to give it to someone else. This is what he's saying. And so what, he's, what, we, what we see in this passage is, is the gospel is, is not ethnocentric. It's not just for one people. In fact, what the gospel is doing, those others that Jesus is talking about, is he's talking about the church. He's talking about how the gospel now is not just for one people group. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for Israelites. It's for all people of all nations. And even within our culture, in our country, it's for all peoples in all backgrounds. And this is God's beautiful design. And it's God's beautiful design that we can celebrate. That we can, we can celebrate together. We saw this in Ephesians where the walls of hostility between God and man have been torn down. If those walls have been torn down, then the walls of hostility between one another have been torn down. You know, this is why I don't buy into the idea, and some of y'all may have heard this before. This is why I don't buy into the idea we have our churches and they have theirs. I don't buy that. Jesus destroys this ethnocentric view of the gospel, and we see it throughout his ministry, don't we? So that's the, that's the first one. The second one, the gospel uh, is, uh, it brings in outsiders. The gospel brings in outsiders. So one of the ones that I like to talk about is Zacchaeus. Right, I love that story of Zacchaeus. Right? We, we know the story. I'm not going to repeat it. But Zacchaeus, although he was, a, uh, although he was a, a Jew, he was an outsider. He was an outsider because of his sin, right? Because of his extortion of of his, his own people to increase his own wealth and pay for Rome, for Rome's oppression. And yet, what does Jesus do with Zacchaeus? He goes to this outsider who's climbed up a tree so that he would not be seen, and he goes to his house, and he, and he eats with them, and he grants forgiveness and repentance to this, to this man who is entrenched in sin. Right? But, but that's not it. I mean, we have so many other examples. What about the woman at the well? John chapter 7. Is that right? Sound right? John chapter 7. The woman at the well, caught in adultery. Caught in, in, in adultery. Was, was living with someone. Was, was living with someone in payment for relations, if you know what I'm saying. And Jesus, what does Jesus do? Not only does it turn into a teaching moment, because they want, to, they want to stone her to death. If you are the Messiah, Jesus, then this is what you came to do. Rid our place of people like her. That hurts. And what does Jesus say? He says, no. He was out to cast the first stone. That's not going to be me. I'm the only one without sin, and I don't condemn you. I'm bringing you in. I'm bringing you close. Go and sin no more. What about the woman who came to Jesus and washed his feet? Jesus was brought into this Pharisee's home, was going to eat and dine. And here comes this woman. Comes busting in the door, weeping. And washes Jesus' feet, pours this expensive ointment over her, washes his feet, her feet with, his, with her hair. And what are they saying under their breath? If Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let him, her even come close to him. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, what did he say? Which one of you washed my feet? 
Not even one of your servants washed my feet. But since this woman came in, she has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. Over and over again, Jesus is accused of eating with sinners and drunkards and, and outsiders. And, he's, and yet Jesus has welcomed them in. He's bringing them in. And this Messiah, as Jesus is showing, they're misunderstanding that the Messiah was not there to destroy outsiders, but to bring them in. That outsiders were now welcome to the kingdom of God. Look who Jesus befriends, who he eats with, who he heals, who he forgives. Look at his disciples, who he calls into his ministry. All of those who are on the fringe of society, isn't it? Outsiders and sinners. So the gospel is not ethnocentric. The gospel is, is, it brings in outsiders, but also the gospel is for encouraging the struggling. Encouraging the, the struggling. The, the disciples are great examples of this. Peter's probably the best. Right? Follow Jesus daily, consistently, but yet a guy who, who, who although devout and passionate and wants, steps up to take the leap, he's constantly stumbling and bumbling in his unbelief and his misunderstanding, Right? He confessed Jesus, and then he denied Jesus. Right? He even confessed Jesus. You are the Son of God. Jesus uh, pronounces a blessing upon him. And then just like the very next section over, Jesus says, I'm now I'm going to die. God is leading me to the cross, and I'm going to die a horrific death on a cross. And, Jesus, and what does Peter say? Jesus, Peter says, no way. That's not going to happen over my dead body. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So if there's an encouragement for us also in the gospel, it's not just for outsiders, but it's also for, for us who struggle. Not just for those without path and outsiders, but also for us to understand that if you are in a perpetual struggle, the gospel is for us. You know, if you've been around Christianity long enough, I'm sure you've heard, heard multitudes of stories of people who have been saved out of some pretty wicked sin. Right? And then we, we would call those like those amazing testimonies. Right? We've, we've heard them before you know, out of sin and out of certain lifestyles. And, and then at the end, I mean, they're just such a blessing because then we, they see how they, they glorify God in their freedom, their, their new freedom that they walk, walk in, right? They're always in bondage and captive to things. And sometimes I wonder that, that in those hearing those statements, my, my fear is for like us regular people, us regular people who just struggle with sin currently, like all the time, that even though our struggles, they, they, they seem so much smaller, we still think that there's something wrong with us. And that something's not right because how can they be free from such big sins and have such great victory in those things and yet we're still walking in sin? So we want to go run and hide. But the gospel says to us, to you, and it says to me, that even though there may be perpetual struggle and constant struggle, that in the gospel there is constant and consistent grace for those who struggle. And I think, brothers and sisters, I think if we are honest this morning, if you're honest to your heart and to yourself right now, I think that this is where most of us exist, isn't it? I don't know all your pasts, but, but I think for most of us, this is where we, we exist. And so what I want us to do, and what I think Jesus continues to teach us about the gospel, is that we can celebrate God's consistent grace upon grace. John chapter 2. We can celebrate grace. So the last one, I'm going to do this really quickly. The gospel is not about a political movement either. This is what Israel wanted. 
This is what they want Jesus. They wanted Jesus to be their king. Come be our king, Jesus. Establish for us this, this new, moral, great law that everybody has to follow. And if they're not, banish them. Kill them. Take them out. Throw them over the cliff. And this is what they wanted Jesus to do. But this isn't the king that Jesus came to be, is it? You see, there's, the, there's a part of Christianity that says the same thing, isn't it? Isn't there? They believe that if we can, if we can legislate morality, then that will transform hearts. That will change hearts. And Christians all over our country, at least, have spent millions and probably billions of dollars spending on and creating these, these super PACs and these lobbyist groups to, to lobby government to do the very thing. If we can just get this person in office to do these particular things, then he's going to be our functional savior. I mean, am I, am I nuts here? Am I wrong? Did we not see this, this, this last year? But that's the problem is, is it's completely backwards, isn't it? It's completely backwards. It, starts, it doesn't start with le- legislating morality. You can't do that. I mean, you do. You can't legislate morality and transform hearts. You start with preaching and proclaiming the gospel. You imagine if we had all those millions and billions of dollars back and we invested it into kingdom growth and churches and neighborhoods and, and, and we preached the gospel faithfully in our neighborhoods and our schools and our workplaces and our churches. You, you imagine the transformation that would take place? You turn to Acts and see the work of the gospel in, in Ephesus. It completely changed the culture. That's where it begins. So Jesus didn't come to, to, to change the government. Jesus came to transform hearts and lives, and that's why he spoke the way he did. So let's put it all together. Jesus came in a radically new way, defying who, defining for us and for them who are the people of God. And this is being set in motion for us right here. It's no longer going to be defined on, on your race your ethnicity, it's no longer going to be defined by your past or your present struggles. It's no longer going to be defined by your political, pa- your political party or organizations that you're a part of. It's no longer going to be defined by your socioeconomic status or defined by your intellect. The gospel, as this is very important here, the gospel as proclaimed by Jesus Christ tells us that we are the people of God because we are defined by faith alone in Christ alone. Like, do you catch the difference? That we're defined by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, and that trumps everything. The gospel message that Jesus proclaims here and he preaches throughout his ministry is this is what he teaches. And this is why he was rejected. This is why he was, he was hated. This is why he was despised. This is why his, his very people that he used to roll with for 30 years wanted to pitch him off of a cliff. This good news. But he proclaimed a gospel message, a gospel message of good news to the poor, a gospel message to the, to the poor. And I think he's speaking more, uh, what we see from Isaiah 61 is more than just the financial poor, but there's certainly a great idea for us there. And I think that when you are poor, financially, and you realize your spiritual poverty, and your spiritual need, or your suffering, or if you're in pain, whatever it may be, I think that's when we see our greatest need for Jesus, isn't it? 
I mean, I mean, rarely does it happen, and it does. I mean, it, it, it is, and I've seen it, but rarely does it happen that when everything is going right, are we filled with gratitude. Gratitude is not our default, is it? I've seen it in myself. Gratitude is, is, is not my uh, default, but, but let things go bad. Let things go bad. Let things go, go dark. Get, get this, that feeling you know you're out of control. I can't, I don't, I can't control this. And see how quickly it humbles us, makes us poor, and shows us our spiritual poverty and our need. The proclamation of the gospel is for, for those poor who realize their, their need for Christ. The next one is he came to proclaim liberty to the captives. Proclaim liberty to the captives. And this one's a little bit harder for me to understand because if you look down, it talks about the proclaiming liberty to the oppressed. And I'm going to tell you in a minute that there's a difference here. I think there's, a, there's an implication here for us to understand that um, these captives are not just those who are in bondage to, uh, to, to, to sin, I guess we would, we, we would define it, but I think in, in one side of this, this passage and what this word is being used to is I think Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. I think that this, this captivity is he's speaking to and speaking about the, the Pharisees or even these people who are captive to their misunderstanding of the law and the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the, the Messiah. Right? So I think this is speaking to the, the Pharisees who are captive to the law. Because all they know is the law. All they know is the law and its religious works. They know nothing of joy. They know nothing of relationship. They know nothing of reconciliation and grace and peace and freedom. And brothers and sisters, when you start to bring those things up, those who are captive under the law, they get angry. How dare you point those things out in me? I don't need that. I'm good. Look at the things that I have done. Look at, look at my life. They get defensive because they know that in their discipline, in their behavioral conformity to the law, that's their righteous standing. And this is why Jesus is such a threat to them. And this is why Jesus is such a threat. I mean, we, we remember when Jesus said, have you ever heard, do not commit adultery? And everyone's like, yeah, I'm good. I don't do that. I got a great wife. But what does Jesus say? But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust has committed adultery. And see, that's what makes them angry. Because then they make themselves go, uh-oh. Because the gospel goes to the heart. It's not about external conformity. In fact, Jesus tells the Pharisees later on, he says, you study the scriptures because in them you think you will find life. But he says to them, you don't. You find life in, in me. Life is only found in, in, in me. And you are disobedient to the scriptures because the scriptures point to me. It seems that Jesus is pretty harsh to these guys. And it seems like, like, uh, like, like these are the, always the bad guys, but I think underneath all of it, and Jesus attacks on them, is I think Jesus has sorrow for these guys. I think he has sorrow for these guys. He has compassion on these guys who are captive. And they're so captive, they don't have a clue that they get angry and they get filled with wrath when Jesus preaches grace and compassion and joy and reconciliation and forgiveness. I mean, look at the things that they got indignant about toward Jesus when he healed a guy on the Sabbath. They get angry at him. 
You know, we live in a church age where everybody gets grace but the religious guy, right? Everybody gets grace but the religious guy. And yet, isn't he just as captive, just as spiritually poor and blind and oppressed? Isn't he just as deceived and wounded? Doesn't he need grace too? I think in in our area, there's hundreds and maybe thousands of people like this who are in captivity to their own Christianized version of their own law and self-righteousness. And some of us might have been one of those persons before. And there's grace for you. There was grace for you, and there's grace for them. And I think that, that Jesus is telling us, this is why I came. Set them free. I came to set them free. You know, Jesus tells the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son. And, and the, the parable certainly about the, the son who goes wayward. But the, the blaring conclusion is also toward to the self-righteous, isn't it? When the father goes to the, to the older son who is inside, who is inside pouting, and he's pleading with his son, come out. Come out. Come enjoy Israel. Come out. Come, come enjoy the blessing of joy of being in me. He gives recovery to the sight. He recovers sight to the blind. I think this is a really important part of a passage. Something like we, we understand, we sing songs about this, but I think what, what this blindness is, is we become, we, come, we become blind, our sight becomes impaired when we've been hurt in such a way or we've been wounded in such a way that our sight becomes messed up. We become, we become wounded in such a way that our sight becomes so messed up that even for decades and even for years upon years, our, we, we can't see straight. We can't, we can't see straight. We, it's like looking through glasses that are cracked. You still see, but you still see everything skewed. And I think when Jesus said, I'm bringing sight to, to the blind... Certainly, there's, act, uh, uh, there's, a, there's a thing here. There's an aspect of the spiritually blind. There's an aspect of the spiritually blind. And when Jesus says, I, when he comes, he says, I'm going to give you eyes to see. I'm going to give you eyes to see so that whatever that wound may be, whatever that, that hurt may be, whatever it may be, you can move past that. And you can let go of your bitterness and your hurt. And you can forgive. And lastly, to proclaim liberty to the oppressed. The oppressed, I think, are deeply uh, are, are connected with the captive. The captives, right? We, we talked about there the religious people who find their worth in their doing rather than knowing Christ and being satisfied in, in Him. But the oppressed are, are those who, um, I think, the oppressed are those who have been pressured. They're under the pressure of the law. They're under the pressure of those of those teachers or those leaders that that we were talking about earlier. We described them as the captives, the ones who had said, "You better do this, or you better do that, or why haven't you done this better, or why you should do this better?" And what's the result of the oppressed? What what happens to the the oppressed under an, enough pressure and and over time and long enough time of trying and trying and trying again, they they bust under the pressure. And they bust under this pressure as if, and, and they begin to believe in that pressure that God really doesn't love them because I can't measure up. 
I don't, I can't do these things as I've been told over and over again. Do this, do this, do this, do this. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't pray enough. I don't memorize the scripture enough. I don't do all of these things. And so they don't measure up. They know no grace. They know no mercy. And they have no relationship with God because in of themselves, they just couldn't get it right. And so they just walk away. How many thousands of people that we know have been this way? They just can't live up to that, that created line that we say, okay, now that you're saved, do this. And we, and wow, 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 we're, we're projecting a false form of the gospel to them, and they can't measure up. How many people have walked away? I, I, think, I think there's thousands of people. Thousands. I mean, and I mean just in our... In our region, people who are oppressed like this, people who, who hate church, people who call us hypocrites, and it's, and it's because they have been oppressed by a distorted, graceless gospel, which is not a gospel at all. That's not good news. But Jesus came to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. This is something we've taught over and over and over and over again, and we need to continue because we, I think this is something that we have to get right over and over and over in our hearts and in our souls every single week. We have to hear it over and over because we hear it over and over that God in Christ has favor upon us and proclaims favor over us is something that is just hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, we'll, we'll agree, yeah. But it's just hard for us to, to believe. And this is what Jesus is proclaiming over us, that God loves us and God delights in us. And yet we have a hard time with this because when we dig down deep, we don't really think God takes pleasure in us, do we? We don't think God takes pleasure in us because of, once again, all the things that we fail at or all the things that we, we struggle at. Because we think that this is how we earn God's favor. We've been taught. I mean, we've been taught that. I've been taught that. I know you've been taught that. We've been taught that. This is how you earn God's favor. This is how God's going to like you and continue to like you. And once again, the problem is that this is not what it means to be a Christian. This is not Christianity. This, this type of Christianity doesn't even exist. It's not real. Because if Christianity doesn't exist by faith, faith embraced in the, in the, uh, the, embracing the, the righteousness of Christ, if, it's not, if your faith does not embrace the righteousness of Christ, now as your righteousness, you haven't taken this on, then you're not a Christian. That's not Christianity. A, a, a faithless Christianity, not in the righteousness of Christ, is, is not Christianity. It's flat out not Christianity. It is not the gospel. Being a Christian is not about your works of obedience or your performance of do's and don'ts, but it's about faith in Christ. This is why the gospel is such good news. Good news for the poor. Right? That the spiritual needy. Good news for the captive. For the, for the, for the guy who's, who's entrenched in his self-righteousness. And trusts in himself, the, the, a slave to the law. This is why it's good news for the captive. This is why it's good news for the, the blind, the one that can't forgive sin and is hurt. This is why it's good news for the oppressed, the one who's been felt under the pressure of their do's and their don'ts. This is why it is so good news, because it meets us exactly where we are. 
and sets us free and tells us you don't have to live as a slave anymore. You're a son. Delight in this. Delight in the one. Delight in, in Christ. This is the gospel message. I want to read a, a quick illustration, and then I'm just going to close. It's a story that I read in, um, in, in one of my readings this week, and I thought it would just be so helpful for us in understanding and, and particularly closing. And I'm going to read this for us. A large, prestigious British church had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of each new year, all of its members and its mission churches would come to, to the parent church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, located in the slums of a, of a major city, were some outstanding cases of conversions. Outstanding cases, right? We know those. Thieves, burglars, and others. But all knelt as brothers and sisters side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England the very judge who sent him to jail for where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted and became a Christian worker. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The two walked along in silence for a few moments, and then the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. A marvelous, marvelous work of grace indeed. Then the judge inquired, but to whom do you refer? The former convict, the pastor asked, or answered. The judge says, I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The minister, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. You see, the judge went on. It's not surprising that the burglar received God's grace when he left jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he understood Jesus to be his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And when he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford, obtained my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. I was sure that I was, I was all I needed to be, though in fact, I too was a sinner. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I am the greater miracle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of the grace that you have given to all of our hearts and our lives, and no matter what place or area we have, may have come from, that we would see the work of grace, the miracle, the work of your grace to open our hearts to see Christ. I pray now that your people are just marveling and, and rejoicing and that good news. And no matter if we're poor, captive, oppressed, blind, 
that Jesus Christ, his message of the gospel that we believe now as his church is the, the favor that has been proclaimed over us. And so we want to delight in that this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.